Welcome to Uplifting Women Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Join our co-hosts, Holly Tesca and Kristen Strunk, thought partners in the world of leadership, equality, and personal and professional development. Listen as they bring stories of inspirational women and their allies who are working every day for authentic leadership, equality, and inclusion in business, education, and community. These are the stories of the people whose mission it is to ensure others are seen, heard, and respected. They have overcome challenges in the workplace and the world or supported other women in doing so. Holly and Kristen are committed to uplifting women's voices, sharing inspiration, advice, and maybe even a few laughs from women and their allies about the work they are doing to promote inclusion and equality in our world. They believe that by sharing stories of challenge and triumph, we can all make the world a better place as we inspire others to step fully into their personal leadership space. We are so happy you have joined us today for our conversation. Thank you all for joining us today on Uplifting Women Podcast. I'm Kristen Strunk with my co-host, Holly Tesca. And we are here today with Dr. Wilma J. Slenders, PhD, or Dr. Wilma, as she's known. She is the president and founder of Transcend Management Advisors, Inc., a consulting and coaching firm established in 1997. Dr. Wilma has worked with C-level executives for over 25 years, consulting up to their organizations, coaching them to be better leaders, and serving as their trusted advisor. As a speaker, consultant, and coach, she asks provocative questions, challenging individuals to think beyond their held paradigms. Her professional career includes international consulting roles, executive leadership in not-for-profit organizations, and being a university faculty member. She is also the co-founder of four successful businesses in four industry sectors. She is known for her pragmatic business results focus, which has resulted in a proven record of success for enabling personal and transformational change. She is a certified professional coach and holds a professional certified coach accreditation from the International Coach Federation. Welcome, Dr. Wilma. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think we would love to start by hearing a little bit more of your story and how you got to where you are right now. Well, Kristen and Holly, thanks so much for having me uh, on your podcast. Um, really happy to be here with you today. Like most people's uh, journeys and stories, it's been pretty convoluted. I thought I would be a medical doctor when I graduated from high school. Um, my university career the first few years wasn't very stellar, so I decided that I would be a phys ed teacher. That uh, I was good at sports, didn't know really what else to do, and and didn't took that education. I never actually did become a phys ed teacher. I worked in recreation. I worked in not-for-profit organizations. I worked for global consulting firm Accenture. And then almost 25 years ago, I started my own company called Transcend Management Advisors, which is based in Calgary, though we do serve global clients. A little bit of speed skating coaching in China, you can throw in there a little bit of uh, being the ICF coaching sites, uh, community of practice, lead and co-lead. So it's been um, multifaceted to say the least. One thing I do know 
about uh, the journey is one, thankfully, it's not over yet. And two, I think everything that uh, I've experienced along the way has made me who I am today and helps me offer the value that I do to the clients that I work with. I love that story and just a little bit of your background, and I appreciate it. When you think about the transitions you made between careers, between countries, it sounds like, what were some of the main driving factors for you about why you chose to make the changes that you did? I guess going back originally to going to university, I, I was uh, quite smart in school. I got good marks. Honestly, I didn't have to work for any of it. Just came very naturally. I just thought that would continue in university. Mm, wrong. It didn't. Uh, I realized that you actually have to work and study in university unless you're you know, a genius. Well, so I wasn't a genius. It was a hard realization. And so when, when that happened and I knew I wouldn't be able to get into medical school, I looked at, well, what am I good at? Well, I'm good at sports. So you know, kind of that logical, look, I'll be a phys ed teacher. Why not? Sounds good. When I decided to pursue higher education, so the master's degree, so I have a master's degree in management, I wanted to do that internationally. So my heritage is Dutch. My parents are Dutch immigrants to Canada, and I do speak Dutch. And we have, you know, our family's always been in touch with our uh, family in the Netherlands. So I, I wanted to do an international degree that was truly international. I wanted to do a program that was in English, not where I had to learn another language. I figured it was going to be tough enough without having to do that. Um, the program that I took through Boston University was in English. It was in Brussels, very close to um, the southern part of the Netherlands where my extended family lives. So lots of different factors. And then uh, other changes in my life, a lot of the factors that I've considered are, one, is it something I really want to do? Uh, two, how is this going to help me grow and develop? So I'm not a person who likes to repeat things over and over. So I'm, I don't like routine. I've never liked routine. I like the new, the exciting, the spontaneous I know there's a time and a place for those, and I help my clients with uh, planning and strategizing a lot of times. But for me, it, it just needed to be add another element to who I am as an individual and, and what I bring to the world. And I know that you also have a passion for supporting women as well. I hope you'll talk a little bit about that, too. It's interesting how that passion came about. I mean, obviously, I'm a woman, so that totally makes sense. I, when I was growing up, I never believed that there wasn't anything that I couldn't do. So I'm not sure why that was, if it was just part of my character or where I grew up or how I grew up. But I always thought I could do anything I wanted to. And that that was you know, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy for quite a long time until it wasn't, until I experienced discrimination, sexism. And I would say, you know, in, in those days, 
there weren't a lot of female role models. Not, not that I'm that old. I mean, it's not that long ago. But there weren't that many women in business. The whole idea of men being the leaders and women being subservient and women not, women not holding more powerful roles just really didn't so much enter my consciousness till a bit later in life. Again, because, you know, a lot of the things that I wanted to do, I was able to achieve. And I never felt that people were holding me back. Perhaps they were, and I was naive. Uh, perhaps they were, and I didn't notice. Or maybe I didn't care. I don't know. It's it's kind of an interesting thing. But then it's not always the big things that that uh, you notice. It's the little things. So it's the little things. Well, can you make coffee or can you take notes or, you know, the kind of the small things that that women are you know, traditionally expected to do. Even when I was in my teens, I remember uh, my dad worked as a, a ranch manager for a gentleman who was the CEO of a large uh, oil and gas company. One time we were having a conversation with this gentleman and, and my mom said, well, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to be his, um, his secretary? Because that's the term they used in those days. Wouldn't you like to be his secretary when you graduate from high school? And um, I knew it wasn't the right thing to say no. So I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking in my mind, hell no, I'm not going to be a secretary. Not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary, but I just never saw myself um, playing that kind of role. I see and have experienced as, as I've matured in my career, uh, I've seen more instances of uh, discrimination, of sexism, of lack of equity. I realize that someone's got to do something about it. And then hold up that mirror to your face and you go, well, Maybe that's someone's me. And if I do something and someone else does something and someone else does something, then maybe we'll start creating, first of all, awareness. Because I think a lot of men still don't understand or get it, that it does exist. And I see that on posts on LinkedIn. It's just really quite interesting. So awareness, understanding. So what is this? You know, it's great to be aware that sexism or discrimination exists, but there's no understanding of what it is or what it looks like. So what? So creating then that understanding of what it looks like. And then once we know that, then we can actually take action to create change. And that action is incumbent upon men and women. It's not just, this is not just a female issue, which a lot of people like to characterize it as. It's not, it's a people issue. You're absolutely right. A lot of what you're saying resonates with me as well. I mean, back in the day, I'm not ancient, but I'm old enough to remember the days when it was a big deal for a woman to be able to get her own credit card. You know, mm -hmm. the typical roles that you were directed to were things like a secretary or a school teacher. Yes. Um, there wasn't a lot of other options. A leader of something? Oh, my gosh. And I went to an all-girls Catholic school for high school. There were no boys, so we had to be leaders. It was a very interesting dynamic. And I think about that even in my own life today, how that was very formative for me. 
like you, I really wanted to be a doctor. And I too didn't, I think my grades weren't stellar because nobody took me seriously. Right. So there wasn't Mm -hmm. like the guidance counselor there saying, oh, yeah, you can do it. And here's all the things you can get help with and et cetera, et cetera. It was just kind of like, oh, that's really a nice aspiration. That's really nice. (laughs) Now, why don't you go off and study liberal arts? You're right. It's multifaceted. And when you're living it, you don't realize that it's actually happening. It's only when you can look in the rearview mirror and say, hmm, this could have turned out a little bit differently. That's yes. where we get our wisdom from. But because I think there's been a lull in kind of keeping this at the forefront and um, things like the Me Too movement, the issues with racial equality or inequality, I should say, have really surfaced the dialogue again. And the thing I don't want to happen is I don't want it to silence It's like Mm -hmm. we had a lull in the conversations and everybody was falsely thinking, oh, everything's fine. It's moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I've looked at the numbers, the research, you know, at the pace we're going, it's going to take 400 years for us to reach equal pay. Well, and and the COVID-19 crisis really is that uh, women's equity back, I would say, at least by 20 to 30 years, because women have borne the brunt of the crisis by being at home, caregiving, um, not just for children, but for elderly parents sometimes, uh, leaving the workforce because of the stresses associated with both. It's had a devastating impact on women in the workplace. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say a lot less so on men. So for the most part, you know, they've continued to live their lives, I think, uh, the way that they were before. Now they're just working from a different place. But with women, there's just so many added shifts in terms of all the things that they do uh, in the home. And, you know, I don't blame the men for that. I think this is a big socialization problem at the root of it, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, how we're brought up to we're, we're categorized in roles based on gender and it, it's going to take a very long time for us to shift that mindset in how we teach our children about what they should, can, and could do. That's, that's the root of it. We're just following through with what we've been taught. That's true, but we need to change that, that narrative. Absolutely. We need to change that that thinking and also the teaching. Individually, we can't create enough momentum to change the kind of change that we want. But individually, as a collective, I think there's an awful lot of power in that. When we think about those changes that we've been talking about with COVID-19 and and some of those impacts, what are some of the things that we think that women can start to do to advocate for themselves in those situations? And in addition, what are some things that leaders and organizations can start to be aware of in places where women are being negatively impacted? 
I think there's a number of things that um, organizations can do. I think, first of all, recognizing that there's an issue where concern is, is the first step, right? So if you don't believe that there's anything to address, you're not going to take any action. So becoming more knowledgeable about what the impact really is. Second, having dialogues with their women, the women that work in their organizations as to what it is that they really need and want. I I suspect it's going to be quite different uh, depending on the level of employee, uh, their um, tenure in their career, whether or not they have kids, how old the kids are, that kind of thing. But if organizations want to keep women in their companies, they're going to have to make some changes in terms of the support that they provide. And, you know, maybe those changes are going to be really good for men too, right? It's not just being good for women, but being good for men as well. So I think those are two things. I think on an individual level, the virtual, you know, Zoom teams, Skype world makes it really easy for people to be invisible. It's easy So turn your camera off. People forget you're there, even though your name's on the screen, right? If you've got 20 people in a video room, do you ask every single one their opinion? No, typically not. I try to do that, but it takes a lot of time. So people that are more vocal are likely going to be more vocal virtually. They're going to contribute more. It's, I think, harder for the moderator or the manager to keep track of all of that in this digital environment. And so if I don't want to participate and I don't want to be visible and I want to hide, it's pretty easy. But it's also really easy for people to overlook me. And I think when we think about maybe moving to hybrid workplaces where some people are Uh, working from home and some people are in the office, I think there's even more of a challenge because I suspect a lot of women will choose to work remotely, work from home. And so, you know, the people that are going into the office to a physical premises, they have the water cooler conversations, they go for the lunches, they do all those things that all of us used to do. And do to create visibility for ourselves. So now, again, it's really easy to not be visible. It's um, it's a, a, a topic that I'm really passionate about. I'm, I've started writing a book about women's visibility in the workplace. And so the COVID crisis really has been the impetus for me to start looking at this. It's easy for women to be invisible in the workplace or have the wrong kinds of visibility. Now everything's turned upside down and we're seeing more of the same, but now we have additional challenges in terms of how we show up and how do you get that attention? How do you get the visibility? How, what does that mean for you wanting to move up in the organization? So again, I think, organizations, managers, leaders in organizations need to be educated on these scenarios and what the impacts are. And that whole more caring, compassionate approach that 
a lot of people have been advocating and say are saying is a requirement during the COVID crisis can't end when the crisis is over. We need to keep that. That needs to be part of fundamental leadership skills moving forward. That's a great point that I really hadn't thought about before. But but you raise an yeah. interesting point because women, I think your your guess is correct, will naturally want to stay at home because they have that ability to help manage a sick child for a day that has to stay home for school or whatever. They'll naturally do that because they see themselves as natural caregivers, right? Mm -hmm. And we won't really think about that. And they will sink into the walls. Hadn't really thought about that. But I think the the hybrid model certainly has potential for that to happen in a big way. I think about it and it becomes really evident to me managing a team of mostly women. I see the times when they are called into caregiving roles, whether it's for children or elderly parents and the default of that being, yes, that's what we will naturally do. I think that it will take to Dr. Wilma's point, the education of the leaders in organizations to pause and wait and think about how they approach those situations. It raises a question for me, Dr. Wilma, in your commentary, you said that we do need to keep up the empathy and the caring that expressed itself at the beginning of the pandemic. Are you seeing that currently as something that still exists or are we moving away from that already? In my experience, it it just depends on the culture of the organization as to what uh, what I'm seeing. So in, in some cases, organizations want to get their people back to the office as soon as possible and basically are mandating that less caring and compassion about individual circumstances. And then some other companies are fully embracing it and saying, okay, you know, and, and we've seen this with some high profile uh, companies globally, um, you can work remotely all the time if you want, right? It's your choice. And so, you know, to me, offering the option to work remotely all the time is caring and compassionate. I think there's everybody's working remotely. It's different than if people are sometimes working remotely and sometimes working in the office. So the hybrid, I think the hybrid scenario creates more challenges um, for caring and compassion. So, you know, if, if Holly's got a young child, but she's coming into the office and I've got a young child and I'm staying home, uh, well, well, Holly can do it. Why can't you do it, Wilma? Right. So that that invites those kind of comparisons, even though everybody's unique and their situations are unique. But you still get that, and so I think that's where some of those challenges are going to be. I've, I've had conversations with some of my clients about hybrid uh, work. Their workplaces and it's something they're considering. It's like, 
they're saying, well, Wilma, what kind of rules should we put in place? What kind of guidelines? Um, and, and I'm not an expert in this, so I hesitate to offer any kind of counsel on this. Uh, but does one size fit all? No. Uh, but can you have a thousand different options? Probably not. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, Kristen, you're the HR person, so probably you'd have a better answer to this than me. I would probably take my HR hat off in this particular instance, and I would say that if you are working for an organization and you are in a position that is a professional level position, you are responsible for getting certain amount of work done, certain projects, being in certain meetings, having certain conversations, your ability to do that isn't impeded by where you are. We've already proved that it can mm. be done. Yes. So I bristle a little bit at the rules and regulations aspect of things because we are going into a brand new way of working and we are going into, in my opinion, a brand new relationship with work itself. And that social contract that we've had with an employer, we're seeing it in the number of people who are choosing to step away from traditional work. That really comes down to, I feel, people looking around and saying, wait, I don't have to be bound by your rules anymore. I don't have to do this your way anymore. Mm -hmm. And I believe this offers maybe women in particular a new level of independence, maybe some different options that they haven't thought of before in terms of ways to start businesses or interact with clients or whatever the case might be. But we're, what I'm sensing is that we're seeing a break in that old social contract of I will come and work for you and follow your rules. You will give me a paycheck and benefits. And we're starting to see that fracture rather just a little bit in terms of people scratching their head and saying, I've been at home for 20 months. I have done my job. Mm -hmm. I have gotten to a place where I can balance my family, my other responsibilities, my mental well-being, my physical well-being. I don't want to go back to the office Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Yeah, That doesn't work for me anymore. So I think it's going to be very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And I think we have the opportunity to really broaden our perspective about all of the opportunities it potentially opens up if we start to think about that social contract a little bit differently. Well, and, and just to your point, and I've seen some conversations on LinkedIn about this as well, is uh, you know, with this new world. So you pay me to do, you know, you, you pay me to achieve an outcome and typically in most professional roles, right? So if it takes me only four hours a day for five days a week to achieve that outcome, um, is that okay? Or do, are you going to, you know, pile on more work, which is typically what would happen in an in-person environment, right? Oh, you know, Kristen's got her work done in four hours. So here's some more, Kristen, take some more on, Right. Um, it's, 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 I think, more challenging in a virtual environment to determine exactly how long it takes people to do things, number one. And 
I don't know. It's you know, it's I think it's a new it's an interesting question. The whole thing is it's so complex because there's so many different elements to this, right? I agree wholeheartedly with everything that's been said so far. I do think the opportunity to redo the contract is certainly in existence. And and when you stop and think about it, the talent shortage, uh, you know, I mean, they can't find employees anywhere. We've lost 4 million plus women in the workplace. Okay. There are many more college graduates that are women than are men. Mm-hmm. I don't know, somehow or another that the numbers don't add up, you yeah. know? So if, Organizations can't figure out how to make this work for individuals. I don't know how they find talent. Again, I think people are really thinking about, and and again, maybe women specifically are thinking about why are they working mm-hmm. when in 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 Canada has some different support systems in place, but when we think about the price of childcare. When we think about minimum wage, which hasn't increased in a number of years, it isn't necessarily that, in my opinion, that it is a desire not to work, but it's more of a renegotiation of that contract of what mm-hmm. exactly am I getting for doing this? And yes. when we when we think about that and we think about creating organizations where people can learn they can grow, they can be mentored, they can get new skills. That is one of the things that I'm seeing is really at the forefront of people's minds right now. What am I learning? What Mm. am I developing in? How am I moving my career forward? And when we think about bringing women into an organization and helping them grow in an organization, the mentorship, the attention, the focus that needs to be in those areas are a lot of the things that have also been cut when finances get tough. And so I I think we have put ourselves into a very difficult position of not having the resources that we need to bring in and mentor and develop specific groups of individuals And now those specific groups of individuals are saying, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to either go find my own thing or I am going to choose to stay home to take care of caregiving duties in my family. But that perspective, I think, is very important for organizations to be aware of in that if there's no opportunity for people to grow, or get that mentorship that we know is so important for underrepresented groups. I think that piece of it becomes something that is a make or break part of the decision. Yeah, I agree. I I think you're spot on with that, Kristen. I mean, if it's a matter of today's, today's workers want something more than just a paycheck out of it. If it's just a paycheck, they can find other ways to make that work. I listened to a podcast the other day where they were talking about um, ch- the childcare crisis in our country. And um, 
you know, they gave a couple of examples of families. The one family, uh, the combined income of the husband and wife was like in the low 70s. And they were paying $24,000 a year for child care, substantially more than they were paying for a mortgage. Okay. Then there was another family that made um, a little bit over $100,000 combined income. And, you know, that's, that's a livable wage. However, they were paying $35,000 a year for child care for two children, you know, right there, that's $24,000 or $35,000 that I don't have to make. So I don't need to have a job, you know, if I take that out of the equation, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's multifaceted. Yeah, I think we need to keep talking about all these things because they're not going to get solved overnight. And, and those examples that you mentioned, Holly, the, the numbers don't make sense. And uh, one thing that here in Canada, there's been a proposal to, uh, by the federal government, to implement a $10 a day daycare program. Uh, whether or not that's going to uh, actually be implemented, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But that would be one way, right, to reduce the daycare costs so that more women can can work if they work in the workplace if they so choose. And I think that's some people say, well, you know, why, why do we need to have more women in the workforce? Well, reality is <laughs> there's a lot of jobs that are vacant. I mean, it, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a circle, right? This cycle that we go through. If you don't do this and you don't get that, which means this. Um, so, so it is quite complex. I, I agree. I think in some uh, more traditional organizations, larger companies, the people at the top of the organization haven't realized what Kristen is saying is that the employment contract is changing, has changed, and it's not going back to the way it used to be. But we know that the way things used to be is comfortable. And this leads to, this change leads to a lot of discomfort. And so if we could just go back now, if we just go back to the 50s, right? I mean, things would be so great, right? Yeah. Yeah, they know. would be. We'd be home cooking cooking dinner for when Ward came home, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. And we we try to be happy doing that, right? We exactly. put a smile on our face and put on our nice dress and high heels for when he came home. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more. Um, when do you expect your book to be out, Dr. Wilma? Oh boy, I hate to put a date on it because then you'll hold me accountable. I put it out on LinkedIn and then, uh, you know, people are asking me, how's your book coming along? And I've been trying to educate myself more fully on kind of our traditional history, the patriarchy, misogyny. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading a lot of uh, books just to broaden my own perspective on this whole issue and concern. And so that's, it's been very enlightening. And I, someone had recommended a book to me just uh, um, a few days ago on LinkedIn. It was called Drinking from a Different Well, How hmm. Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action by Annette uh, Simmons. And this book has kind of challenged my thinking. What she talks about is that men want to win. There's a winner and a loser. They want to win. And that 
and I and I agree with this. I think women have been socialized differently. And so most women, not all women, are want to be more collaborative. They want to use the collective. They want to do it together. And so it's not so much about winning. And so the motivations are different. And we reward people who want to win. Our society rewards people who want to win. Organizations reward people who want to win because most organizations are still led and or dominated by men. Well, this has been a really awesome conversation today, ladies. So thank you so very much. It's just been a wonderful time. Well, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it as well. We, we cover a lot of ground. Thank you so much for listening in on this latest episode of Uplifting Women podcast. Holly and Kristen appreciate your dedication to Uplifting Women and look forward to you joining them again soon. This podcast is sponsored by UpliftingWomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Please visit your favorite platform where you found this podcast to leave a review. If you are an uplifting woman or a man who champions women's success with a story to share, Kristen and Holly would love to talk to you. Please visit upliftingwomen.net and leave us a message.